Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. Well, good morning. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more. If you like singing, you're going to love heaven. If you don't like singing, when you have your glorified voice, you're going to like heaven too. I'm pretty sure of this. I love to sing. There's nothing for me that just brings more joy than just cranking it out. If you're ever driving down 501 and you see some guy in the car next to you like losing his mind, it's just, just keep driving, just keep driving, just having a Jesus moment. Well, if, uh, if you think, didn't, I, didn't you just preach a couple weeks ago, Alan? I did. Um, Pastor Brian is out again today, and so you're stuck with me. And I, I just realized, as Scott was making his announcement, that next Sunday uh, we begin our sermon series on forgiveness. I can get away with anything I want <laughs> because Pastor Brian's got to live what he's preaching, Right? So, uh, so today's the day to go off the rails. So, and, and, uh, so with that, last week, Brian kind of wrapped up the sermon saying, next Sunday, we're in Acts 6 of our sermon series, and uh, we've been going through the drama of Scripture, and Acts 6 is the book of Revelation. And I didn't get a choice in this. And he told you a fib, a story. I would, we used to, yeah, years ago, someone said, you don't call, say people lie. You say they told a story. I said, no, Jesus told stories. This is a lie. So, and he told you that, I was, that next Sunday you come and you're going to hear all of the answers to all the questions or something to that effect. Well, I can assure you that we're, I can tell you where to find all the answers to all of your questions about what's going to happen at the end. And it's in your Bible. And so uh, you can read that, no, but in, in seriousness, I'm just going to be up front and tell you, I don't have all the answers on everything there is to know about the end times. And if anybody ever tells you that they do, keep moving, because there's a whole lot that we just don't know. But today, as we look at God's story in Acts 6, uh, hopefully in Act 6, not the book of Acts but in the act six of our drama of scripture, hopefully you'll leave here in a few minutes. Um, wow, that's a mess. Um, my son's writing, running slides today, so if anything happens, just calling it out right now. Um, he told me he was running, he texted me before church, said, I'm running slides. I said, don't mess up. And then I found out all of his friends, when they found out who he was running slides, also told him, don't mess up. So a lot of pressure on Jay, and so whatever happens to the slides, just remember, Jesus didn't have slides, he did just fine. We should pray before I keep going off the rails. Jesus, we need you, I need you, we love you, we are so thankful that you have created us to be worshipers, to be laughers, to be learners, to be parents, to be young, to be old. God, you've given us such incredible lives uh, incredible capacity to learn and understand and grow and experience so many beautiful things. And Lord, we know that in this, we also are created to look forward 
to a greater day than anything we've ever experienced or known. And you tell us that the glorious riches that await us in Christ Jesus are not worthy of being compared to the suffering that we go through in this life. And so, God, I pray that we will leave here in a few minutes or in a a little while with a greater sense of hope, a greater sense of recognition of what a great God you are and joy knowing that you have already written the end of the story. We give you praise and pray that you will guide our thinking and understanding by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So we've been working through the drama of Scripture. Um, we, I don't know if Brian or I have mentioned, but the book we've kind of been working off of is this book here called The Drama of Scripture, Finding Our Place in the Biblical Story by Bartholomew and Goheen. I brought it with me today in part because I'm going to read from it a little bit, but also in case you're interested in kind of digging deeper, because when you're doing a high flyover sermon series of covering all the big ideas, um, there's a lot of meat that we couldn't even begin to possibly chew on in the context of six sermons. But as we've gone through the previous five acts, act one, um, just to bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us, in act one, we see the creation story in Genesis 1 and chapter 2, and God creates us, he creates mankind, uh, he creates the whole world, in act, act two, which we see in Genesis chapter three, we see the fall. Sin is introduced, Adam and Eve choose to go things their own way, and as sin is introduced, the whole world ends up being corrupted, we all end up being corrupted, anybody here corrupted? Yeah, you can all raise your hand. If you didn't raise your hand, that was proof. Um, so we're not only corrupted, sometimes we don't want to believe that we're corrupted, but we are all fallen, we're all broken creatures, and God makes a promise all the way back to Genesis 3 that he's going to send uh, a savior who's going to strike the, the head of the enemy, and the enemy's going to strike his heel. Then we get into Act 3, God chooses uh, the people of Israel through Abram, and he's going to have these people for himself. He establishes a whole ritual order whereby people are going to come to an even, even greater recognition of how much they need God, need his redemptive work, and no matter what they do to try to fix their problem, they can't fix it. And then a savior shows up, the king, King Jesus in Act 4. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, we see a way made for all people to have right relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as Brian preached last week in Act 5, which is where we are currently living as a people, we are the church, we are on mission, we have a responsibility to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ until he returns. And that brings us to Act 6. Now... The best place to start in Act 6 is at the end of the book, and I'm going to invite you to join with me. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 21, and I want to start right here. Um, Revelation chapter 21. The Apostle John has a vision from an angel. He's on the Isle of Patmos, and he writes, and this is what he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated, next slide, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What do we know about the return of the king? What do we know about Christ coming back? Now, some of you are probably wanting me to tell you whether there's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-tribulational rapture of the church. I'm a pan-tribulationist. It's all going to pan out in the end. God's got it figured out. I don't need to. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour that the Son of Man will return. So I don't need to figure all that out either. But there are some things I absolutely do know. First of all, God is going to make all things new. God is going to make all things new. A new heaven, a new earth. The first one is going to be passed away. We read about this throughout Scripture. If you don't like the earth now, if you don't like going and picking your tomatoes at this time of the year, and because of the extreme heat and all the rain, they're splitting and the bugs are eating them, you're going to love the new earth where the tomatoes are going to be massive and sweet and juicy and bugs aren't going to destroy them. If you don't like gardening at all, trust me, you're going to like the new heaven, the new earth. In Isaiah, we read about this as well. I didn't put it up here, but listen along with me. Isaiah says, behold, God says, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or even come to mind. I find that fascinating. When we get to the new heaven, we're not going to sit around and go, man, remember the heat in South Carolina in July? Oh my goodness, the humidity, it's going to feel like 110 this Tuesday. That's what the weatherman told me this morning. I don't like him. He's rude. But you know what I like about scripture? It says one day when we walk into the new heaven, the new earth, we're not even going to remember how bad this weather was. God says through Isaiah, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create a Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. The psalmist writes of this, of old God, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, all of them will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And the apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Repeatedly, from 700 years before Christ, to the psalmist David, to Peter, Jesus mentioned this. In the book of Revelation, we see this throughout scripture. God is saying, the things we see on this earth, and this is why I say, do not get overly attached to the things on this earth. It's all going to be destroyed. It's all going away. But that's good news. Because as heaven and earth pass away, and God destroys everything that we see and know and love, or think we love, on this side of, of life, there is a new heaven, a new earth that's going to come down, a new Jerusalem. Now, when I hear that it's a new Jerusalem, my first thought is, I'm not a big fan of cities. Anybody else? Like country life? Chuck, yeah? I can't shout you out in another sermon. It's just pick on Chuck every time I stand up here. But you know why I think we don't like cities sometimes? Because we haven't lived in God's holy city. 
All of our relationships have been stained by sin. And so we get around people and we're like, oh, I'd really like to get away from them. But in the new city, in the new Jerusalem, relationships will be made right. And it comes to the second point I want to make here. As God creates this new city, he makes all things new. What else we learn in this passage is God is going to dwell with his people and he's going to make all things right. In Act 1, we see this beautiful garden and Adam and Eve are enjoying the presence of the Lord. They walk with God in the dew of the morning and they interact with him. Have you ever just wished you could just like see God, sit across the table from him and just talk? I do. And sometimes I, for me, I mean, that's, this is prayer, right? This is the, the closest thing we have, but it, it's, it's not quite the same. But what we do know is that in the final act, in the new heaven, God is going to dwell with his people. The scripture says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. If you woke up this morning and had to take pills to make it through the day, I got good news. When you have a glorified body and you're living in a new heaven and new earth, and God is walking in, in the presence with you, you will no longer need any of those pills. If when you walked in this church today, you had to ride the elevator because the steps were too much, or if you did take the steps, but your knees were aching and creaking, and you walked up the stairs, and like, man, they've added four inches to each one of these today. Good news is, in the new heaven, those steps aren't going to be a problem. They're going to feel good. If you've lost a loved one through death, if you've lost a marriage through divorce, if you've lost a child too soon to drugs or other addiction or whatever way you've lost them, in heaven there will be no more weeping, no more mourning, no more crying, and our remembrance of these former things won't even be with us anymore. There are good, bright days ahead. I love the fact that John writes that all things will be done away. All things will be made new. Not some things, all things. And then God coming down from heaven and creating this new heaven and this new earth, he's going to eradicate the effects of sin. The fall will be undone. What else do we know about the return of the king? I want to read a quote to you from this book. Because I think it's fascinating and worth hearing this. I think, that, in my opinion, this is worth the whole weight of this, of this book. I'm going to put it up here as well for you. The author says this, The New Testament shows us that three major events will usher in the restoration of creation and the arrival of God's kingdom in its fullness. Number one, Jesus returns. Number two, the dead are raised bodily, some to share in the life of the new creation and others to final wrath. And three, the world comes before Christ to be judged. I'm just going to say real before I go on, those are the three things that people want to bicker about, talk about, and figure out. When is Christ coming back? What does it mean for the dead to be raised? And tell me about the judgment. But I like what the author has to say, and I want to keep reading because this is significant. 
Unfortunately, these end-time events have often stirred fruitless controversy among Christians. Believers often try to establish a cosmic timetable into which they can slot known historical events. But since there are many such timetables in competition, this sort of curiosity about God will do, how he'll do it, and especially when he will do it, too often breeds debate and dispute among believers who should know better. There are different understandings among various groups of Christians concerning details of the time of Christ's return, the millennium, the rapture, the final judgment, the antichrist, the tribulation. But what we should be doing is fixing our attention on such things. Fix, excuse me. He says fixing our attention on such things is a bit like becoming obsessed with the nature, strength, and frequency of birth pangs when we should be thinking about the baby. Here's his point. Too often, we, when we think of end times, are fixated on a whole lot of details. When I was in Bible college many, many years ago, I had a professor. He had taken a set of of bed sheets. I want to say there were maybe eight of them. And he had had put them up all the way around the room and had drawn out meticulously a timeline with events and pictures of everything that we read about in Daniel and the book of Revelation and had meticulously figured out every detail. Exactly what's going to happen, the order it's going to happen in, what it's going to look like. And I sat for, I guess, about four or five months listening to him. And and on the one hand, enjoying it. On the other hand, absolutely despising it. And in that class, I determined I'm never going to preach the book of Revelation. (laughs) And for the most part, I haven't. The book of Revelation is God's word. It's powerful. It's effective. And we should read it. But what we are not to do is to read it to try to decipher every little nuance and detail because the reality is there are good God-fearing Christians who land all over the spectrum on how the details are going to flesh out. What we don't need to be doing is trying to argue with each other and figure out all the things that we can't figure out and land on our position so that we can sit and, and disagree with one another. To do this at best is just speculation, but at worst, it's destructive to the church. If you love to talk and, and go on about end time stuff, maybe you don't like what I just said, and that's okay. But God's word is very clear that there are some things that we are supposed to do. Mark Twain said this, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts I do. And the part that we need to understand And it's very clear in Scripture is that when Christ returns, we do have a responsibility to be ready. And as I was working on this, I got to thinking about my childhood. I was a latchkey kid. My brother and I would come home from school starting in about third, fourth grade, come home to an empty house, and we could pretty much do anything we wanted to do until mom came home around 5.30. Now, we didn't have internet. We had two channels on the TV. We had bicycles. We had friends in the neighborhood. And that was pretty much it. There wasn't a whole lot we could do to get in trouble. But we did find some. But one thing we did know is that 5.30, mom's coming in the door, so whatever mess we made, we got to get cleaned up. We would sometimes make food. Like we'd make like no-bake cookies 
And then we would clean everything up, put everything away, and we'd put those cookies in our dresser so we could eat them later. Because mom wasn't going to let us just eat those. We, we were going to make sure we were ready. When mom came home, she wouldn't even have a clue. We'd even open the windows and air the place out. Well, when scripture tells us to be ready for Christ's return, it's not like that. In Luke chapter 12, we see this. You can go to the next slide. Keep going. Be ready. Next one. Yes. Luke chapter 12, we read this. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master find awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Jesus gives uh, four word pictures, excuse me here. Um, yeah, Jesus gives four word pictures. The first one is to stay dressed for action. The, in the original Greek, it's literally to gird your loins. The idea is men wore these long robes and he's saying, tie them up, be ready to go at a moment's notice. Be ready to run, be ready to move quickly, be fast on your feet. The second one, he says, you need to keep your lamps burning. This is a day and age where they didn't, couldn't just flip a switch. They had to keep oil in the lamps. And if they ran out of oil, then you didn't have light for the night. The third, he says, servants who are waiting for their master to come home don't know when he's going to come home. Could be during the day, could be in the night, but the servants need to be ready. The house needs to be ready. The kitchen needs to be cleaned up. The windows need to be open so the place is aired out. To go to my story. And he says, and if you know what the thief is going to break in, you would have been ready. Jesus is very clear. Nobody knows when he's coming back. But one thing is clear. You need to be ready. Before we ever get to the sermon series next week on forgiveness, Jesus could have already come and this whole thing could be finished. So what does it mean to be ready? Let's look at what the Apostle Peter wrote. I think the number one thing we know, should know from Scripture about being ready is to be ready is to be holy. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some of you count slowness. How many of you think, I wish Jesus had already come. When is he coming? It just feels like it's taken so long. It's been over 2,000 years. Peter says, the Lord isn't slow. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed and since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? That's the question right there. What sort of people ought we to be? Knowing, knowing what we know from the book of Revelation, what do we do now? 
He says, what kind of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? There's your key right there, holiness, godliness. Waiting for and hastening. That means to speed up the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot, or blemish and at peace. If you go in a doctor's office today, people are waiting, aren't they? And waiting and waiting and waiting. And most of them are scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Ten years ago, we didn't have that feature, did we? As Christians, what we are called to do in our waiting is not to sit and wait and scroll and scroll. As Christians, we are called to be actively waiting, actively pursuing holiness and godliness, actively pursuing peace. Not being troublemakers, trying to fix everything that's wrong in the neighborhood and in the world. Jesus told his disciples, very simply, take your cross, follow me, deny yourself, and follow. What does it mean to actively wait for Christ's return? It's to pursue holiness. It's to walk rightly. It's to live your life how Jesus lived his life, loving and sharing his love with the world around you. Interestingly, in that passage, Peter says that we hasten the day of the Lord. And it's fascinating to me because I wonder, is it taking so long because we aren't hastening the day of the Lord? We're just like, yeah, I'm just scrolling through life. Getting up, going to work, raising the kids, eating dinner, going to the store, going back to bed, do it again tomorrow, put up my TikTok, watch my YouTube videos. We live so passively, spiritually, that I think we are slowing his coming, certainly not hastening it, if what Peter says is true. And the Apostle Paul writes to Titus, in Titus chapter 2, something very consistent with this. He says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawless, lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And these people, he says, are zealous for good works. Jesus, Peter, Paul, all link two things together that I think is important for us to grasp, church. The end is coming. This world as we know it will be destroyed. Sin will be done away with. Things will be established right. And your response is to figure out what day Jesus is coming back, whether the church is going to be raptured first, second. No. Your response, my response is simply this. Be ready by being holy and pursuing Jesus. That's our response. That's what the scripture calls us to. What is clear in Scripture is very simple, and it can be summed up in kind of three phrases. Well, number one is our God is going to go back, go back. Go back one more, Jay. 
Our God is going to make all things new. If life is hard, if life has been difficult, just know it's going to be made right. And our God is going to dwell with us, and he's going to make everything right. And the third, go ahead, is we're to be waiting. And our waiting is supposed to look like being ready by being holy. Be waiting by being ready by being holy. I have a favorite comedian, Jim Gaffigan. Anybody know Jim Gaffigan? He has this whole shtick about bacon. And I remember one day after I had listened to this, I was driving in my car and I realized Jesus died on the cross, which gave me salvation and forgiveness for my sin, but it also gave me bacon. And I actually thank God that day for bacon. I like bacon. I think there's going to be a lot of bacon in heaven. Ah, I hope there is. But Jim Gaffigan talks about this. He says, he says I was at this brunch buffet, uh, and he said, I'm, I'm making my way through the line. He says, and you get to the end of the line, and there's this huge pan of bacon. He goes, and I look at my plate, and my plate's heaping with all this worthless fruit. And I'm thinking, bacon, if I'd known you were here, I would have waited. I would have made room for you. You've been there, some of you. You've gotten to the end of the line, you're like, man, quiche? I could have just had a plate of bacon. I'm going to need another plate. Similarly, I think some of us, on the day Jesus comes back, are going to go, Jesus, if I had really believed you were coming, I would have waited. I would have been pursuing holiness. I would have been ready. Church, let us not be distracted by everything going on in the world around us. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. Jesus Christ. The closing chapter of the book of Revelation has three phrases that Jesus repeats in Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, verse 12, and again in verse 20. He says, Behold, I am coming. Look, I'm coming. Be assured of this I am coming. We know Act 6 is coming. We know that Christ is going to return and he's going to redeem this whole mess that is life with sin and death and pain and suffering. And it's all going to be made right. And our job, church, our responsibility is to walk in holiness, to pursue Christ and to proclaim his good news until he returns. I want to pray. And I just want to say this before I pray. Some of us need to take seriously our commitment to follow Christ. Some of us have probably made a decision for Christ, got baptized, joined a church, and we've just been living passively. And the call on us, the call for us, church, is to be ready, to be living, actively pursuing, waiting, hastening his return.
And maybe you need to recommit your life to that. And I pray you will. Lord, come. Jesus, come and meet us here. Come and bring the visible kingdom of heaven to earth so that we will see and know you in your fullness. Jesus, we eagerly await your arrival. And so, Lord, we pray that you will help us to be ready, help us to be holy, help us to be actively waiting. God, we pray that you will not delay except out of your patience so that all will be able to come to repentance. Forgive us, Jesus, for our spiritual apathy. Forgive us for our lack of urgency about the mission that you've given us. And by your Holy Spirit, empower us to be living on mission. Equip us to be walking in holy lives. Reveal to us where we need to live with hope and expectancy. Thank you, Lord, for entrusting us with the work of hastening your coming. Help us to be faithful to be about that work. We love you, and we pray that you would come soon. In Christ's name, amen.